I realized that the reason we were able to create the opportunity to escape was because of a lot of the sort of psychological tactics, not only that I teach on the podcast, but also that I learned somewhat in Germany, like, hey man, you know, get people to identify with you, um, get people to realize that you're on their side, that you're working towards a common goal, that kind of stuff. It was really kind of like Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people (laughs) on steroids. You know, it was really, really kind of cool that I was able to apply these kinds of things in order to escape a potentially really, really dangerous situation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back or welcome to the Live on Bone podcast, Conversations Without Limits. This podcast is for people who would like to listen to real, open, honest and courageous conversations. It's all about human potential and performance and exploring the edges of what we are capable of. I'm your host, Steve McDonnell, and by trading training, a high performance and transformational coach to leaders and teams all over the world. Today, my guest is Jordan Harbinger. Jordan is an authority on social interactions. He has traveled to places in the world that most people have never gone and that many people wouldn't dream of. He tells us exceptional stories about being in East Germany and the former Yugoslavia as it disintegrated and his time as a tourism guide in North Korea. As he describes his kidnappings, you get an idea of how he's able to use his communication skills to talk his way out of what were literally life and death situations. Jordan is a former Wall Street lawyer turned podcast interviewer. He speaks five languages. His podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, has over 5 million downloads per month. And I'm part of that because I love listening to Jordan and his his show is pretty exceptional in terms of how he's able to bring great guests on and distill their learnings and their stories into great experiences and insights that we can all take home. So I definitely would recommend The Jordan Harbinger Show. So we had a great chat. Jordan lives on the edges and you know out of out of those lived experiences are pretty powerful stories and out of those stories are pretty powerful learnings and we get stuck right into all of that so I'm gonna hand it over right now and I hope you enjoy it look you've had a, <laughs> an insanely interesting life yeah. right too much like, college insane yes, inter- I wouldn't, too much of a lot like I, I suppose look your your life has been super interesting, Jordan, and look so far so much so kidnappings, you know, North Korea tourism. I mean, it yeah. goes on and on and on, right? And I suppose we'll get into all of that. But I'm curious kind of about you as a person, Jordan, and kind of even if you look at the context of, of your upbringing, right? Where, you know, what what was it about, you know, what are the couple of things that people need to just hear about your your um your early days that would give us an insight into kind of what what the person who the person is right now? Sure. You know, let's see. Well, I, so for me to pick, when I was younger, I was, an, was slash am, I don't know, I guess I'm not a child anymore. I was an only child, which, you know, of course means I had no brothers or sisters. And it's really unfortunate because my parents, they originally didn't want kids. Then by the time they had me, my mom was 37, which back in the 80s was, or late 70s now when she was pregnant was just, I mean, that was a, that, that she was a, a decade too late, you know, <laughs> to have kids according to society and everybody. So I, I wasn't going to get a sibling. I wasn't an accident. I was just a late addition uh, to the plan. I've already clarified this with my parents many times, <laughs> uh, or at least that's the story that they're sticking with. And it's unfortunate because I grew up not being a very good cell. I, I, I don't know if this is every kid, but I didn't, I wasn't like, I'm just going to sit and read. 
You know, I needed social contact. I needed to be around other people and ask questions and talk and all that stuff. So I actually was the type of kid that needed a sibling badly Mm -hmm. and I didn't get one. So I started to get into trouble because my both my parents worked. You know, we just kind of talked about that. My dad worked a lot of hours at Ford. Um, that was his thing. Like in Ford, the auto companies in Detroit, they would take your whole life from you if you let them. Like they're just, they had unlimited amounts of money for overtime. Mm-hmm. They didn't give a shit about any sort of family stuff. Like they just, if you wanted to work from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., they were going to figure out how to stuff your hours in there, you know, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. they paid well. So it seemed like it was worth the trade at the time to, to a guy like my dad mm-hmm. who grew up poor, right? Eight kids in Detroit. So he was like, we need money. Um, and, and when, and the more, the more, the better. And my mom yeah. was a public school teacher and she was working part or full time all the time. So I, I grew up largely raised by, uh, in the early days by like the daycare people, um, we call it latchkey at my school, you know, babysitters, schooling. I went to school a lot. So I did get some of that social contact there, but when I came home, there was nobody there, you know? So I was raised by television, uh, in my adolescent mm-hmm. and teen years. Which is funny because when I look at the kind of humor I have and stuff on the podcast, a lot of that comes from just like 80s and 90s TV sitcom writing that has been (laughs) burned into my brain by watching five plus hours of television every day for my entire young life, which is kind of gross now that I think about it. Like all the, I could have read a lot and done a lot with that time. Um, And I started to get in trouble. You know, I started to learn, I I got a computer, which was the beginning of the end. (laughs) And I went on the internet and this is early, early days, you know, this is like 1992 or 1993, finding a chat client on the internet that would, uh, it was called IRC, Internet Relay Chat. Mo- nobody knows what this is. This is an old school type of chat that was international. These chat servers started with hashtag whatever the channel was. So you could go into like hashtag hacking and there'd be a bunch of, there'd be hundreds of people in there from all over the world talking in English usually, and it would be not necessarily only about hacking, but there was a lot of cyber criminals in there. And there's a lot of obscure channels and you could be in a hundred channels at once. So you could be in like the Star Trek channel and the phone hacking channel and the computer hacking channel and the uh, Guns and Roses channel, you know, whatever it is. And it's people from all over the world and you're almost never talking about the topic. So you would just leave your chat client on 24 seven and you would catch up over time because everyone's in a different time zone. Yeah. So you would you would just leave your thing on. And I started to learn about hacking and cloning cell phones and different kinds of crime and credit card fraud and wiretapping and all this stuff. And of course, my parents had no idea what was going on because why would they? Like, what? What? they didn't even know where to look on the computer mm. to find that. And we had dial-up internet, but I would just like have a bot, save all the chats, log in, download the chats, read it, catch up. You know, that's what internet message boards and chats were like back in the day. And I started to get in real trouble. Um, Stop me if I'm boring your audience here, but I started to do, in America, Mm. there's these green boxes on the side of the road and these, they're like cabinets, you know, it's like a, the size of something you would maybe put like your coat or your clothing in. And inside, if you open them up, which you are not allowed to do, they're they're locked, but they're locked with like a, a type of screw that if you could make that type of wrench, you could just open it. So of course I made that type of wrench. It's not hard to do that. Um, (laughs) And especially with instructions online, you know, get this kind of wrench from Home Depot or whatever hardware store (laughs) and then use a soldering iron with this kind of solder 
to solder in these parts and then now it's roughly the shape you need and now you yeah. can open this cabinet this is stuff like that so i would open it and inside were all of these circuit boards uh for lack of a better term and a bunch of screws in in the screws each screw had a wire attached to it and these are called line pairs and what these are, are all the landlines so for the phones before cell phones for the whole block the whole neighborhood there's hundreds of them in this cabinet and if you take alligator clips and you t and they're connected to a phone like the those these orange phones that the guys who work on the phones have which i managed to come across by borrowing one from a truck when i was 13 uh while the guys were eating lunch uh not proud of it i stole the thing obviously um not again not proud of it but i just was a kind of a shitty shitty kid um i am curious I would connect the alligator clips to those line pairs and I could listen to people's phone conversations because landline phones, they're not encrypted. This is all analog. Your phone's so what, not encrypted. What time, Jordan, did you do that? I mean, these I was things were 13 years old. I was pretty young. At 13 years of age, you were like you hear fel that? catching felonies. I didn't hear that. Is that your kid? There's an ice cream truck outside my house at half five p.m. Oh, nice. On a Sunday. But anyway. Yeah, if you want to go get ice cream, I'm great, man. <laughs> no, you're all good. <laughs> like my, my question, Jordan, is. You were 13 years of age, so I'm just going to handle on, on your age, right? So you're, you're obviously you've stolen that from the truck. And your curiosity led you a lot of places, right? And it's brought you right up to, to doing yeah. this and Crime. listening into people's conversations at 13 years of age. Like, right. What, what types of conversations were? Yeah. Like, what, what was the most memorable conversation? I know you're, you're sharing a story here, right? But again... Yeah, yeah, you can guide the story. No, that totally makes sense. So, so most of the conversations were well most of the time you clip onto a line and there's nothing there so you would you would spend a lot of time putting the things on there and hearing a dial tone because there's nothing on the there was nothing on the line but then there were a couple people that were always on the phone and i started to remember like oh 27 rows down there's a guy who's always on the phone you know maybe he worked from home i don't know or he just didn't have a job i really don't even know so i'd start to pick up like those kinds of pairs uh, and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to visit, revisit these people, revisit these people. And I started to hear stories that were for adults only. And I don't mean like porny stuff. I mean, like when you're 13, adults are, they feed you, they give you homework, they yell at you when you do bad stuff, they drive you places and you have your parents who are a little bit more three-dimensional, but not really, right? Because they also don't go, man, we're really worried about paying the rent this month. Like they don't, they don't tell you that stuff. They don't tell you that your aunt yeah. has melanoma and she's not, you know, they don't, t you're, you're a kid. You're on yeah. the border of knowing, uh, at least for me, I was on the border of being allowed to know some adult stuff, but then also still going to bed at 9 p.m. So I didn't hear the real conversations about whatever. So, but these phone conversations were different, man, because you would be on this line pair listening and a guy is talking to another friend of his or a relative that's an adult and they have they know they know in air quotes that no one else is listening so there are this is unvarnished real adult conversation of the kind that kids who are raised in a healthy environment never hear now kids who are raised in an unhealthy environment around like you know adults who don't know how yeah. to raise kids or they're being raised by their older brothers or they're in an institutional home or they're in juvie they hear this stuff and they grow up too fast because they're around it all the time but kids my age they've never heard anything like this so this one memorable conversation was a set of conversations was there was a guy who was a neighbor he i remember he was kind of a jerk because he had a convertible and he would drive way too fast in the neighborhood and i remember thinking this guy is kind of a dork because mm. he's got his convertible 
and he's always blasting music and he's always driving too fast in the neighborhood, but he also lived with his mom. And, okay. But he was also like 40 or 30 something. This wasn't like a young, it wasn't like a teenager or a 20 something guy who just bought a nice car and lived with his mom and was like, you know, saving money on rent. This was like an older guy who spent his money on that car instead of getting his own place for some reason. And I remember he was getting a divorce. And this is probably one of the reasons he lived with his mom. He, he probably lost his house to his wife or something like that. Or, you know, she kicked him out. But he was getting a divorce. And when he was talking to his friends, he'd be like, yeah, she's so dumb. I'm going to take her for all she's worth. What an idiot. I'm not giving her any of my money, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what money, dude? Like, you live with your mom. <laughs> but I remember thinking those things. And then he would talk to his sister or female relative, and he'd be like crying and whining. Jeez. And I'd hear him as this <laughs> little boy. And then he would talk to his mom, who he lived with. Uh, or Sorry, I guess it wouldn't have been his mom, now that I think about it. It must not have been his mom. It must have been an older uh, Maybe no, an older sister, yeah. Yeah, maybe another older cousin. sister. Yeah, because his mom lived in the house. Uh, so, or cousin. But he would just turn into this whiny little boy, even more so than he did with his other female re you know, relative, sister, whatever. And then he would, again, he'd be talking to like a male relative and he'd be like very standoffish and very like, well, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And then I would hear him talking with his ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife. And he would be this complete ass. And I remember this weird thought as a kid. Again, I'm like 13 years old. I remember thinking, if this guy would talk like he did with one of the female relatives, where he was very vulnerable and open and kind of sad about the whole thing, if he did that with his wife, he probably wouldn't be in this situation to begin with. Now, that's a simplified perspective, but I just remember him no. being such a dick yeah. to his wife. And I was like, I bet you she's... I bet you she would kill for a moment of like honest emotional <laughs> communication <laughs> with this guy, you know, and he just like couldn't or wouldn't do it. And so I started to hear all of these types of conversations on a regular basis. And I would spend like six hours sitting next to the bush in this green box, listening to conversations and like eating snacks. You know, I was really constantly obsessed with this kind of thing. And I just started to become really interested in people and what makes people tick and what makes people interesting or interested and what people are talking about when they're not trying to put on a front or they think nobody else is listening. Because I, I started to see that the conversations that people like that were having on the phone that they thought were private were far more interesting than the conversations that people yeah. were having in public, especially with kids. Jesus, Jordan, that's super interesting. I can definitely see how you were led to North Korea and these different locations. But just in terms of that, I suppose, crucible moments, those crucible moments in your life, I suppose, at 13 years of age, when you really got an insight into people and mm -hmm. what's, what's beneath the wall that we all put in front of ourselves, right? So how has that influenced? Like, in, in what ways does that, did that experience, has that experience changed you or does that make you see things differently? Yeah, I think from there... I stopped, I started to realize, and this is a, a moment I think that most young adults have, but I, I think I got it early and I think I got it really clearly, which is you, as I mentioned before, when, when you're 13, adults are like these two dimensional beings that either praise you or punish you, feed you or feed you homework, yeah. right? That, that's it. <laughs> but once you see that everybody is a three dimensional person that has their own set of problems, that has their own set of like, Pre not preferences. What, what am I looking for? They have their own set of emotions. They have their own set of flaws. You know, yeah. that that was so interesting because I remember being like, oh, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm only the center of my own universe. And it's that moment where the child turns into like the starts to bloom into the adult where you go, oh, other people also have problems and issues. 
that don't get resolved just by virtue of the fact that they're adults. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, it's not fair that I can't have this because my parents have money and I don't. And they're exerting power over me and they're exerting financial power when you're. And then when you hear people complain about how they're going to be screwed and not be able to make their car payment or their wife's leaving that you're like, oh, adults also have issues where they are powerless, where they are not able to control the outcome of a situation where they feel helpless, mm, where they yeah. feel vulnerable and they don't like it. Like that was a big, big, big realization. So taking that knowledge as an, as a kid and then realizing that adults are similarly flawed, it really opened up my eyes into, to the nature of a lot to, to of, not to be too grandiose, but like the nature of humanity, right? That <laughs> nobody ever has it all figured out. And so the sooner you can kind of realize that you're not going to just wait a couple more years and have it all figured out, you can become uncomfortable with like uncertainty and not knowing something and not knowing the outcome of a situation or not knowing what's going to happen if you do something. And that, that turned out to be kind of a big advantage because I think kids especially are always looking for, humans in general, but kids especially are always looking for certainty because we're scared but if you realize that it's never yeah. going to come and you realize that when you're age 13 14 years old you start to get an advantage because you're like oh i can literally just roll the dice because nobody knows it's going to happen in life yeah, so man. i can i can try yeah. all this new stuff and yeah. it's fine like it's not going to permanently alter any path that i'm on like that guy didn't die because he got a divorce right he, he went on with his life at yeah, some man. point you got a real insight into people and human nature and kind of many different aspects of, of humans, I suppose, in mm -hmm. our, in our in humanity, as you said earlier, and at 13 years yeah. of age. So I, I'd imagine you became like that, that element of being able to be comfortable or to be in a position where in really stressful, high pressurized situations, you and rolling that dice, you know, you, you, you actually saw that or kind of began to seek that as well at the same time. I, yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to think, I, I think real turning point for me, another real turning point for me was probably, and this probably does leapfrog off the last thing at some point, but when I was in high school, I started to get really bored and I started to get in trouble a little bit again. You know, my friends were starting to get in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. And I had this girlfriend who was kind of like, you know, she was she was one of those girls that was like, I want to try all this new stuff that's kind of bad. So she'd be like, I have weed, you know, or she'd be like, I have a porno movie, whatever it is. And I would be like, wow, this is exciting. And I was a little bit boring for her, but also as a temporary relationship because she told me one day, she's like, by the way, I'm not going back to school next year in America. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, her mom was a senator, so she had access to all kinds of stuff that I didn't. It, for people who are in uh, Ireland, a senator <laughs> is like a... Uh, it's not. Do, do you do people know what that is over there? A senator, like this kind of political. Yeah, position we, in the we know the political. Yeah, it's very, especially with Trump. You can imagine the the whole world was zoned in on. Yeah, on Trump and even Barack Obama. I think they're they're pretty pivotal moments worldwide. So we have a good understanding um, politically, yeah. Jordan. Yeah. Okay, so I should actually I should clarify. She wasn't a senator. She was in the House of Representatives, which is our other legislative body in the United States yeah. and you have yeah. it there's each state has a number of them proportional to the number of people that live in the state. And this is in Michigan. So she was a Senator in Michigan or sorry, a house of representatives, uh, in Michigan and her, so her mom had access to all this like really cool stuff and resources. And, you know, she's just well-connected person. My parents were not those people. They were, they were hardworking and, and that, but they weren't well-connected. 
So she goes, I'm going to a boarding school in Norway. And I was like, what, why? And she's like, this school that we go to is boring. Nobody knows anything about the world. No one's going, you're not gonna learn more about the world. I'm done, I've, t I've taken what I can learn about the world from our high school and it's time for me to go. And I was like, that's really interesting. And I think this was actually my sophomore year. So she was gonna be gone our junior and senior year, the last two years of high school. And I was like, I need to do something like that. And she's like, oh, well, here's the boarding school that I'm going to. And I was like, cool, let me show my parents. And they were like, yeah, this place is like $35,000 a year. You're not going to Norway to boarding school. What are you talking about? And I was like, okay. So I told my girlfriend that and she's like, yeah, I figured it's kind of expensive. It's really hard to get into something, something, whatever. It's an international school. But you know, and I was like, I gotta get out of here somehow. What if I become an exchange student? Because we had an exchange student from Norway at our school. And, I, and mm -hmm. she's like, yeah, you should do that. Here's the organization that runs that. And then she brought me the catalog uh, of places that, that you could go to. And I was like, whoa. So I'm flipping through this thing. And it's like, you could go to Israel, you could go to South Africa, you could go to Germany, you could go to France, you could go to Australia, you could go to Ireland for a year. And you just lived with another family and you, uh, you learned all about the culture and whatever. And I was like, this is great. I'm going to get out of here. So mm -hmm. I became an exchange student and I went to, I ended up in Germany, but I ended up in the former East Germany, <clears throat> which I didn't know at the time was like this former communist satellite state from the Soviet Union. But I, I was, I was pretty pissed at that when I found that out, but it turned out to be the best thing ever because mm -hmm. West Germany is, a, you know, has a lot more culturally in common with the United States. A lot of people spoke English. East Germany had less in common. This is 1997. So it was like seven years, not even seven years after the Berlin Wall falls down. So this country is reunifying, there's different culture. Nobody really speaks English that well, except for the English teachers because they had to learn Russian because it was a satellite state of the Soviet yeah. Union. So I go to this, this school and I'm like the only American that they've ever met these people ever. And they've never had an exchange student at the school. And, it, and the only foreigners are, there's a couple of Russians, there's a couple of Vietnamese kids, there's a couple of Cubans. That's it. so communist countries that it like yeah, moved yeah. the family to East Germany to work in a factory or something. I don't know. And that was it. So I was the only Western non-German that these people had like ever met in their entire life. You didn't know that German, like obviously before you headed over, you picked that school because Germany sounded, you know, sounded like a place you wanted yeah. to go to. And yeah, like you can't pick the school, you just pick the country. So I thought like, oh, I'm going to go to Germany and it's going to be super <laughs> awesome because it's going to be like nonstop techno parties and whatever, right? You know, that's what you think. Yeah. And then you show up there and it's like the same crap you have at home, only different, everyone speaks a different language. But it's, it's awesome because everything is still new, but it's still like when you're living a life there as a high school student, you know, it's got its ups and downs, man. A lot of people didn't make it through the year. Um, and I, I guess I almost didn't, you know, but a lot of people went home, they got too homesick, they couldn't hang, but I, I started to thrive after a while. And, and that was in part because I really realized like, Hey, you're going to face this uncertainty everywhere you go. And it's not like I left my home and I had all these awesome friends that were doing great things and I was leaving and it was mm -hmm. going to be this amazing year. I left because I was like, I'm going to get arrested if I stay here. You know, my friends were yep. playing my friends were bashing in mailboxes with baseball bats and shoplifting. Like that's what they were doing when I left. And I was like, this is not a good situation for me to be in. That's one of the reasons my parents even allowed me to leave because yeah. they were like, this is expensive. Finish your, and I was like, cool. Adam just got arrested for shoplifting. And she's like, Adam, the guy you hang out with five days a week. And I was like, yeah, and rusted LSD. Oh, and, I'm, and they're like, oh my God, we've got to get our kid away from these people. 
but they know it's like, you know, here's an option, send him to another country. I'll never see those guys again. So it started to look like a pretty good option. And, um, and my mom had done a, her fair share of traveling when she was young as well. So she's also kind of an adventurous yeah. she, she knew the value of it as well, Jordan, I'd imagine. She did. You know, she, my mom went to Australia in the, in 1968 alone as a woman, hey, like, yeah. So she, and, and, and Australia is far now, but it certainly was, it was even further when you didn't have internet, right? <laughs> like yeah. it was even further when it took five days to get there because you only had these old slow planes and you had to go around the world, so, you know, by, by boat or, or a plane. I mean, it was really, 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 um, it, she was a very adventurous person. And so yeah. she was like, this is going to be a good idea. So she sent me there and that was the, that was also where I started to, you know, the wiretapping thing really taught me a lot about people, but holy crap, did living in a former communist country with a family that didn't speak any English that had one kid, only child, uh, and both parents were teachers. You know, like that was a real eye opener for me that changed yeah. the way that I look at every, everybody and everything. And in, in what way it Jordan, this was in terms of it changed we looked at everybody and everything tell me more about that yeah so you get there and of course all your sort of preconceived notions about what's going to happen are dashed because it's not non-stop partying and whatever and it which is fine but i also I, I realized that like all these social constructs we had in the united states were kind of just you know not only unique to to us as americans but also completely unnecessary uh for, yeah. like you think oh this is how people are raised this is how you teach people this, this is how you teach people how to do certain things, whatever. But in East Germany, or the former East Germany, I remember, look, here, here's a couple examples. I remember going out um, with a bunch of friends. I was in like the ninth grade or the 10th grade. I switched mid-year in in uh, in Germany because they put me in different classes for different reasons for like, you know, different, different sort of language abilities. They thought it'd be easier for me in the ninth grade. It wasn't. <laughs> so it was hard because it was all in German. <laughs> so, so I'm like, Okay, I I end up going out with a bunch of them and there's a party at my friend Maria's house and it's her birthday or whatever. So we go there and I remember they're like, do you want some wine? And I was like, shh, don't say that too loud. Someone's gonna hear you. Your mom's in the next room. And she's like, this is, my mom bought this for us. It's fine, you can have some wine. And I'm like, what planet am I on where 14 and 15 year old kids can drink wine. And she's like, it's fine. It's completely cool. We're not going anywhere. Nobody's driving because we're too young. Um, just have some. And I was like, great. So we're drinking and the mom comes in and I'm like, oh my God, we're dead. <laughs> because we're like drunk. She probably meant us to have one glass of wine. And the mom's like, are you guys okay? Do you want any more beer? I'm going to go to bed soon. And I thought, what the hell is going on here? 16 years old, 15 years old, like we're, if some of us are 14, we're drinking wine and beer. The mom's asking us if we want more. And then I'm like, I can't go home because I'm drunk. Like I'm going to pass out. And they're like, yeah, you should just sleep here. And I'm like, at a girl's house? Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to. So I, I, I told my friend Christian, I was like, I'm going to say I'm sleeping at your house. He's like, why? I'm like, because my parents are going to be pissed off. My host parents. He's like, just tell him the truth. It's, there's no point. You just got to tell him the truth. I'm like, okay. So I call my host family and I go, hey, um, I'm at my friend Maria's house and we're drunk. So I'm going to sleep here. Uh, please don't be mad. And he's like, okay, Maria, Maria who? I'm like, da, 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 da. oh yeah, she has a birthday, right? Yeah. And he's like, he goes, hold on. And he goes, Florian, that's the host brother, the, the kid I lived with. He goes, Florian, do you know Maria such and such? He goes, yeah. And he goes, do you know where she lives? He goes, yeah. And then he goes, okay. Uh, okay, so we know where you are in case of an emergency. Uh, use a condom and then hung up. 
And I was like, what? No, it's not like that. You know, and, I, and, and then the next day he's like, so how, how was uh, how was Maria's birthday? I was like, no, it was the whole class. It was fine. He's like, do you have a hangover? And I was like, I think so. Because I had probably never had. Is that your first you know, time that, drinking, Jordan? Probably that much. Yeah. And he's like, you should drink uh, one beer and a bunch of water. And I was like, okay. So then they gave me a beer and I was like, wow, I feel much better. So I just remember being like, wait a minute. Like, oh my God, man. And, and then my my brother, my host brother, because I remember and I'm an only child, my host brother in Germany, he has a birthday. And our parents, they buy a bunch of beer, a bunch of wine, a bunch of food, and then they leave and go next door because they don't want to deal with the kids and the noise. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're going to let a bunch of boys and girls from your kids' class come over, drink in your house. You're going to leave so that you're appropriately close in case anything happens. But we're sitting here getting liquored up and blasting music and playing whatever, like stuff on the TV. Mm. And this is cool with you. Like this would never in a billion years happen in the United States, at least not with like parents that haven't gone to prison <laughs> twice yeah, yeah. for child endangerment. And nothing happened. Everybody was fine. And it was this really interesting moment where I realized that if you treat people like they are responsible and they act responsibly, it's actually totally fine most of mm. the time. So I just thought that was so interesting because I'd never been treated that way. So by the time I got to college in the United States and everybody would be getting irresponsibly drunk and like passing out and having the cops called and jumping off balconies and all this stuff, I wasn't even interested in that because I, one, I'd gotten that out of my system. And two, they were acting like these 20 and 21 year old adults in the United States were acting way less maturely than a 14, 15 year old mm. kid in Germany. So I started to really see how the human mind was not only malleable, but like how different cultures can be and how normal really isn't a thing when it comes to a lot of things that we think are sort of like sacred values of humanity. And there were a lot of other little things that I learned over there. For example, when you live in a communist country, which of course that Germany no longer was by that point, but when you grow up in that environment, networking, who you know, who you're connected to, that's everything. And so even mm. in a country like Germany, where they have rules and you follow the rules, it was also like, yeah, but maybe the rules can be bent a little for our friends, you know? And it's not corruption per se, but I just remember a lot of like, oh, they said that this takes an hour. And my father, my host father would go and be like, hold on. And he'd walk up and he'd go, hey, uh, I've got an American here, we're waiting for a visa. There's like 50 Turkish people, Saudi Arabian, African, whatever people who are like, you know, refugees or something like or, or, or immigrants applying for a visa. Can I do we need to wait in this line? And the guy would go, American, uh, he doesn't need a visa, but I'm going to give him one anyway. I don't even need to file the paperwork. I just need his ID. My host father would go, great. And then he would slide him my passport. I would end up with a you know year long visa and a driver's license. I didn't wait in line. And I'm like, how come you cut in line? Like, it seems very un-German to cut in line. And he goes, oh, well, that guy's brother owns a bar and my band used to play at that bar. And so I know his brother and I wondered if that was the same guy who did it. And I'm like, so you just mm. schmoozed your way in here? And he's like, yeah. And I remember thinking, I saw that so many times with him. And that's a very sort of communist thing to do. You have to like know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And he would do all kinds of stuff like that, my host father. And he, he told me the story that also I still to this day sort of recognizes like him being a wheeler dealer, as we say. He learned how to drive from a friend. 
because only a few people had cars back in East Germany. Like you, your friend's friend's friend had a car, and if you needed a car, you had to like pay that guy and to get to like yeah, yeah, use sounds, the car. Sounds like a plan, yeah, yeah. And she's like, "Well, I want to get a car because it raises your status so high to get a car or at least a driver's license. It's very, very, very difficult to get either of those things. It takes years." So he's like, "Okay." I, I need to get a driver's license because you need to have that in order to even apply to buy a car in a communist country. So he goes, all right. He calls his cousin who lives in Canada. Guy sends him a case of Jack Daniels and some jeans. Case of Jack Daniels arrives with two bottles missing. Apparently that's standard procedure for customs and immigration uh, policies <laughs> in, in communist countries. Yeah. Case arrives with two bottles missing because the custom guys took their cut. Yeah. He goes to the driving school and goes, hi, I want to learn how to drive. The guy goes, okay, it's going to be 145, you know, Deutschmarks or whatever. And he goes, well, I already know how to drive. I just need the little slip of paper that says I know how to drive. The guy goes, hold on. You need to wait eight months. Then you get into driving school. Then you go through the course. Then you take the test. And he goes, how about two bottles of Jack Daniels? And I show you right now that I know how to drive. And the guy goes, all right. So he takes the driving test with the driver, with the driving instructor, like right there hands over the bottles the guy says you're a decent driver stamps his little paper goes to the police that's supposed to take like two months of waiting time the cops go all right file it in there and he goes how about i file these two bottles of jack daniels for you and your you know <laughs> commanding <laughs> officer and you stamp this shit right now and they go oh looks like you don't looks like you skipped the line stamps the thing goes and then goes to the car place and goes all right i have enough money for the car or whatever and they go well it's going to take you two years you know we got to do this and that and the other thing and he goes i got six bottles of Jack Daniels left in this case that say you have a car ready for me like in a few days. And they're like, come back with the Jack. Give me two bottles now and four bottles later and a stack of cash and come back and get the car. And he did that and he got a car and he was suddenly like the man. And I go, how did, how do other people not know this? And he's like, no, everybody knew this. It was just really, really hard to get foreign goods. I just had a cousin in Canada and he could send me, you know, a $90 case or a, Two hundred dollar yeah. case of a Jack and jeans, mm. and it was worth thousands of dollars of value yeah. in the country. And I'm like, that is fucking mind blowing to me. So I started to realize, okay, if you're trapped behind the iron curtain, there's definitely a value differential in everything that's going on. But somewhere, some way, in every interaction, there's a value imbalance, and you can bring something to someone that they need more than the thing that they think they need. Right. So, like somebody might ask for X dollars for something, but there's something they need that's more. And if you can figure out what that is and you can figure out how to get it to them, you can skip the line. You yeah. can be the more important interaction. You can be, you can get this thing that you want that's not really for sale. Like there's all these ways to get around systems and through systems. And I sort of picked up that mindset from him because remember, he wasn't just engaging in like pure corruption where he's like, oh, break the law for me, here's money. He's like, you want this thing break the rule for me it doesn't hurt anyone yeah. you know and it was like there's a way to do this that's not gross and that's yeah. really a skill set yeah it's very it's very interesting jordan and i'm I, like i know obviously some some of your story right and i think that kind of level of influence definitely would have been invaluable when you were going through you know being kidnapped and your experiences there in that in those moments so i think probably again i'd love to explore that and, and it's with how you got yourself into the situation and out of the situation. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's two kidnap situations and I'll be brief because they're, you know, I could, there's a long version of the story and the short version of the story, but the long version of the story, the first time I go to Mexico, um, I was living in Israel at the time just as a student 
there was this big uprising. I go to uh, Mexico to uh, work for this nonprofit. So I go to Mexico, I'm working for this nonprofit because I kind of have like the rest of the semester to kill. And my dad's like, go back to college and sign up for classes. And I'm like, I can't, it's the middle of the semester. You don't understand. You can't just like show up and start taking classes in the middle of a semester. They don't allow you to do that for obvious reasons. My dad, that was lost on my dad, but I just went to Mexico. I'm working for this nonprofit, um, which just needed interns that were gonna work unpaid. And I just ended up living in this crappy ghetto area of Mexico City because I didn't have any money. The nonprofit was supposed to find me a family. They couldn't do anything slash didn't even try. That's and dangerous enough, Jordan. I, I f like Mexico in, 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 in an area like that. Yeah, like I was in That's sort of like a ghetto barrio place. And I'm not saying that like Mexico City is, City is ghetto. I'm saying these are places where there was no metro line that went there. There was no bus line that went there. There were only these private school buses. I forget what these things are called, but they're school buses that they they airbrush and they'll be like a giant mural of Mariah Carey with like a Mexican flag on it or something. Mm. And like, that's the one you take that gets from your neighborhood to the next thing. And it, it costs a dollar to get on or whatever. So I would, um, I would get off the, the those buses and walk and it's like, there's just no houses that were normal. Everything was made out of like cinder blocks and I was sleeping on somebody's roof that had a little like metal subroof over it and cinder block room. I mean, it was just like an unfinished house where these old people lived and I'd pay them rent and I lived with them. And so I was kind of in this shady area. And like one day I got to do a taxi and the taxi driver wouldn't take me to my destination. Again, short version of the story, wouldn't take me to my destination, wouldn't let me out of the car. And, and I, I, you know, I tried to bargain with him and he wouldn't have it. And I was like, all right. So I ended up in a physical altercation with him and choked him and then got out of the car, uh, that way when we were stopped and, and escaped. And that was like the crude, not using the social skill set way of getting out of the situation years later, you know, I'm starting to realize now that I have these different skill sets of like negotiation and looking for opportunity and things like that. And I'm in another country, Serbia for in the former Yugoslavia. And they, the, 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 the police there, they think I'm a spy because I'm not registering with the police. And the reason for this is because when you leave the country and you come back, if you're foreign, you have to go to the police station and you have to give them your passport. You have to tell them where you live every single time you go, you come back into the country, you have to do it within 24 hours. And, and, one time I did, and they kept mistreating me. I'd be walking in there, the police would be jerks. They were really, you know, this is an authoritarian yeah. regime. They had just gotten rid of Slobodan Milosevic. It's not a place where they're like, oh, we love Americans, right? <laughs> we NATO had bombed them. The police were jerks to their own people. They were, be, you know, you think police brutality is bad in the United States. It's really bad in Serbia and in the Eastern Bloc where the police are part of the state apparatus and they're basically yeah. against the people, right? They don't serve the people, they're against the people. So they would like, rough they would like throw me in a jail cell or they would like yell at me or they would extort me for money or something like that and then one time i came back from austria i think it was it was like 10 o'clock at night i go to the police station the guy doesn't want to doesn't want to help me out with the registration he's just like screw you i don't care and then another cop comes in they have a shift change another cop comes in and goes what are you doing here why are you out of your cell and i was like i'm not in a cell i'm trying to register and he's like you're in a police station at midnight you're not supposed to be here so he locked me in a prison cell overnight with a bunch of prostitutes that were like yelling and screaming and smoking and i had work the next day and i missed work and my boss was super pissed 
And she's like, this is bullshit. Da, 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 da. And I was like, I was in jail. And she's like, well, that's not my problem. You know? And I was like, I couldn't call anyone. She's like, you just didn't even show up. I lost the money from those English lights. Like it was just not good. So I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm not registering with the police anymore. These assholes can come and find me next time. Well, unfortunately, what they did was they did try to find me. They tried to track me down. They couldn't because they're incompetent idiots. Um, but also they didn't give a shit. So they put me in their computer as like a fugitive, basically. Right. And so when I was at a concert, these police officers, like these state security guys were harassing people, including a bunch of the girls that I was with. And they took a bunch of people's passports and I took my passport and they were like, oh, you're a fugitive. You're under arrest. So they arrested me and a friend of mine who was also who was a Serbian guy whose dad had organized crime links. Um, and they arrested, but not like not like the, cur the current organized crime, like past mm -hmm. organized crime. Like so they're like, oh, a criminal's son and a fugitive. This is great. We like hit the jackpot. So instead of taking us to jail and to the police, they took us to a safe house where they proceeded to get super, super drunk like wasted, wasted, wasted. It's like eight o'clock in the morning. These guys are losers, obviously. These are not the cream of the crop. These two, you and your friend, and then you've got kind of three or four of these guys that are just fucking mm -hmm. telling you that. Yeah, there's two of them and there's me and my friend and they're like beating up my friend and there's, you know, it's it was just bad news. And they, they put me in a chair in a room and they were like interrogating me and all this stuff, but they're drunk and they're dumb as, these guys were dumb as hell. So I'm... These are not like well-trained sort of FBI agents that went to school and da da da. These are like militia guys from Bosnia who got, you know, their village got taken over or whatever by Croats in the war. And then instead of them being tried for war crimes, they got given a essentially state immunity by being part of the state security apparatus. So instead of mm -hmm. being criminals or war criminals, they became like state security officers. And that, that was a thing for a while in Serbia. That was like how they protected these militia guys. So these dumb, 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 uh, tr they tr to translate from Serbian, these like peasant idiots um, who probably have a third grade education, you know, were interrogating me, but they, they weren't, and they were drunk and they weren't doing it well. And so I started to, you know, use like psychological tactics and things like that to get them to identify with me as, as somebody who really liked Serbia and was like really into the culture and into the food and all that stuff. And so I started to change their mood and their mindset. My friend was still getting beat up in the next room, but I was talking to the one guy. And then eventually I could tell that he was really, he was losing one, he was losing his buzz from the booze, but he was also losing the energy to continue the interrogation because he, he realized at some point, I'm probably not a spy. Also, I'm probably not an enemy of the state like he thought I was, you know, he's just, yeah. in, and I took the wind out of his sails and I started to say, man, I'm going to get sick everywhere. I need water. I'm going to get sick. I need water. I'm going to get sick. I need water. And the faucet in the, in the basement wasn't working. The bartender upstairs was gone at that point. It was just like this annoying sort of setup that, that he, he, he had to go get water. And he's like, okay, I'll be, I'll be back. And I'm like, thank God. So I, I got a little reprieve from the interrogation. He leaves. And then I hear that the other guy also had left. I hear the car start. And I'm like, God, these guys aren't, gonna, aren't even going to be able to drive, but whatever, not our problem. So I run out of that room. I go in and find my friend. He's in a lump on the floor and we escape. And I realized that the reason, and, and it's, again, it's a longer story that I've told in a couple episodes of the Jordan Harbinger show on my podcast. But I realized that the reason we were able to create the opportunity to escape was because of 
a lot of the sort of psychological tactics, not, not only that I teach on the podcast, but also that I learned somewhat in Germany, like, yeah. hey, man, you know, get people to identify with you, um, get people to realize that you're on their side, that you're working towards a common goal, that kind of stuff. It was really kind of like Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people <laughs> on steroids. You know, it was really, really kind of cool that I was able to apply these kinds of things in order to escape a potentially really, really dangerous situation with a friend of mine. So it was, it, it, it was cool because at the time I, it was really scary. I mean, we thought like yeah, we might I, actually die. You know? Yeah, you must have been pretty yeah, scared, Jordan, right? I mean, it's not, it's, you're, you spoke there, obviously you're articulating how you got out, right? And it's kind of, you know, mm -hmm. you can sometimes forget it's human nature as well to be afraid of your, afraid of your life, you know, and for sure. all that goes with that. So congratulations yeah. for, for using your psychological skills for you and your friend. You know, thank you. Yeah. I mean, looking back, I'm like, oh, my God, that was such a close call because we were in a place where nobody would ever find us again. You know, that nobody and would have ever found to go us. to lands as well, drunk. And I mean, like at that, in, in that, in a, you know, given who they were, what they do, yeah. and the level of intoxication they had, anything can happen. You know? Anything can happen. Yeah. They could have just beat us. They could have killed my friend or beat us to death or they could have shot us and been like, oh, crap, I didn't mean to do that. You know, who knows? Or they could have cut, you know, just left us there. Um like they didn't have the presence of mind to even sort of lock everything well you know they they locked us in there but it was like a crappy door lock that i was able to just sort of ram the door open um it was just you know they just didn't restrain us well they my friend was unconscious it was just a, a situation where like i wonder if they never came back and they thought screw it or if they came back and they were like oh shit, the guys escaped you know i don't know um yeah but if it, it, what were they gonna do i don't know um, it, it was kind of a scary situation. So I, I do have nightmares about that. I do think about that situation quite a bit, actually. Yeah. And now I'm like, wow, yeah. you know, and, and this is before people were getting kidnapped by Al Qaeda in Iraq or Afghanistan. How old were you, John? What, what age were you at that time? 24, 24. I'm 42 yeah, still, now. Still like that. Yeah. Fuck, yeah. So 24 years old, you're not mentally equipped to deal with the amount of like stress and fear that you're under at that no. point. And it would be stress and fear for any person of any age so it's still yeah i mean look fair, thanks for sharing that it's something that you're kind of you know you, you remember and you know in a way that it kind of brings fear back in yeah so yeah so yeah, is, yeah. There, like, in, in, is there anything like jordan i suppose that like if you look at your situation what you've been through and i know you you like obviously you've you do a lot of work right in terms of sharing how to you know positively influence in relationship mm -hmm. with people right i know the after charm is something you set up as well around helping people you know in relationships but in, in in all of those situations that you shared like what are some kind of real practical things that in everyday people can use right in everyday situations are sure yeah i mean i think the most practical stuff some of the most practical stuff i think for people is going to be what i and i've got a free course that teaches this stuff and i don't want to sound like salesy I, I mean it's a free course but still people are like oh you're just going to sell me something if i sign up for this but i've got this six minute networking course that's all about like creating and maintaining relationships with other people for personal or for business. And so some of the most useful stuff that I think that I, I've learned that I teach is really to keep in touch with a large number of people when you don't need something. And we call it dig the well before you get thirsty, right? Dig, it's a title of a book from the 90s. And that's really what it, the heart of it was. Like my host father back in Germany, uh, one of the reasons he was so popular with people is it would be like he didn't just ask people for things when he needed things. He would often give people things before they asked or if even if they didn't ask yeah. at all. So he would go, he would see something and he'd go, oh, you know who would be really interested in this is 
this guy I know who runs this police thing. And it would be like, oh, okay. And he would just like drop by the police station and go, boom, my uh, son, you know, son, my American son, he called me, brought this from the United States. And I know you love rock and roll. So here's this CD from U2 that's not available in Germany or whatever. You know, I, it, it wouldn't really be that because, of course, music gets released everywhere. But it'd be like something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Or I'd get like a, I'd go to the duty free in, in an airport on the way back and I'd buy like a, a bunch of booze and I would give it to him and we would have a sip and then he would bring the bottle in the car and he'd go, we're driving somewhere where somebody else is going to appreciate this. And he'd go to some restaurant and he'd go as like, is, is Misha here? And they, some guy would walk out and be like, Jorg. And he'd be like, I brought you a wild turkey. And we'd all sit down and have a couple glasses of this wild turkey whiskey that I bought at the duty free. And I'm like, what is this all about? Why are we drinking with this dude at 4.30 in the afternoon? And he's like, well, this is a friend of mine. He loves wild turkey. And I was like, okay. And, but then two weeks later, he'd come back with a bunch of like fresh sausage or a rabbit, a hare, uh, Haza, it's called in German. And, and I'd be like, where did you get this? And he's like, oh, Misha has a friend who has a farm who has all this fresh stuff. And you can't buy this at the store because it's Christmas and it's all sold out. But he saved some for us. And I'm like, oh, I get it now. All right. OK, so we brought him that wild turkey and he's like, cool, I owe you one. And he's like, oh, he's probably going to want some of this hair for Christmas. So I'm going to say and it's all unspoken. And I'm like, this is such a cool economy, like a sort of gray economy or like I don't even know if economy is the right word. It's like a, it's like a network that's just very, yeah. it's so interesting how this all works. And it sounds really simple. It's like, oh, you do stuff for your friends. But in America, we just kind of do a crap job at this. You know, you might give your friend a discount if they come to your store and they want to buy something. But this whole sort of like shadow economy that they had set up, especially in the Eastern Bloc, because you couldn't get anything on the market. Yeah. It just it sort more, of like- more hyper valuable yeah. layer right but again it's it's valuable in every sense to be it's yeah it's valuable know. because you think oh oh in a free economy you can get everything with money and or other value exchange and it's above board so you don't need this and it's like yes and no so if they had had a free market economy that guy could have just gone to the store and bought his wild turkey whiskey and we could have just gone to the store and bought the hair for christmas even though it was a little bit more expensive end of story but the, there's still this gray economy even in the united states you know, it's kind of like if you're trying to buy the latest PlayStation and you can't get the console because it's sold out everywhere, but you know a guy who knows a guy and that guy needs something and you figured out what that thing is, you're good. So this still yeah. exists even in like the bastions of capitalism, right? The, there's still this sort of shadow economy where people barter and do things for each other. And that is a really, really useful skill in business. It's like you're looking for an opportunity you're looking for how to exploit that opportunity in a way that's win-win for everybody. And then you're building these long-term relationships. Because I think when people do business and they do it badly or poorly, they look for a way to get their win short-term, they want it now, yeah. kind of doesn't matter if there's a loser in the equation, that's what yeah. they're doing. It's a short-term investment different. really, you know, when you're, you're yeah. long-term, it's a different, you have to bring value, like that's the key. Exactly. So these were all long-term relationships that had like sort of multiple bites at the apple. This wasn't like, I'm going to sell you this thing. And then when it doesn't work, tough shit. This was like, I'm going to give you this thing. And then I'm not even going to worry about whether or not you're going to pay me back or get me back with something like my host father didn't go, here's some wild turkey, by the way, save me some Christmas hair from your friend at the farm. That wasn't a thing he needed to say. 
This no, was just yeah, like, yeah. here's the wild turkey. I know you like it. See you later. And then it's like, oh, all right. And then mm. later on, that guy was like, all right, I have access to this stuff. This stuff is really valuable right now. Who do I owe? I'm going to bring one to my brother-in-law. I'm going to bring one to my mom. Oh, yeah. right. Yorg, he brought the whiskey from his American song. I'm going to save some for him. Okay, I'm going to bring, you know, it's like that's the kind of sort of, that's the programming that's going around in your brain at that point. You're taking care of your own and your own are the people that have taken care of you. So you're yeah. always looking for how you can take care of other people and how they can take care of you is also on top of their mind. And if you run that program in addition to everything else that you're doing in a normal sort of like American way of doing business, it's a humongous advantage, you know? And yeah, I, yeah. I realize this all that like, it's just sort of lost on people, especially in the United States. People look for what's in it for me right now. And they and don't you see that Jordan, the only thing it's sorry for the crash, right? But I know people, right. That are, um, like, you know, you'd, you'd always, you'd always know that person or these people that would like, you know, maybe give you something or reach out for, yeah. a chat but they're 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 you know you know there's eventually it'll come out why they want you know what, what they want from you basically sure. so yeah that's not that's not good i mean those it those relationships to me I, I cut them as soon as i, I have of course yeah it doesn't feel good like there's there's a certain there are certain people where if i get the text on my phone and it's been a long enough it's been so usually i know it's the same people who always ask for stuff but also if you haven't heard from somebody in three years there's a lot of times where you go, I bet this person wants something, yeah. right? And yeah. so, and, and it's always the same people because they're the same, they're the people who you don't exist unless they need something from you. Like it's always those same folks. So you do, you cut those relationships, right? You, you end those relationships and like that type of thing, those, those don't last long. And those people probably sit around wondering why things are unfair for them. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like even even as you're talking there, Jordan, like I, I a lot of my work is is in organisations. I, I do a lot of work with leadership teams and leaders, and mm. you know, you I, at times you might hear of um maybe that person is just not you know able to go to the next level, and you know, in, in coaching conversations with a leader, let's say one of their team, and you know, you explore that further, and it might be not able to um influence or be strategic at the level above. People mm. don't really know what he or she does, and they're not able to actually um operate in that world like so is that kind of something that like i'm curious about your mentality of bringing value and within an organizational context what does it look like in that world or is it, or is it the exact same it's, it's pretty much the exact same so it, it's going to be different because i might not just stop by and bring somebody whiskey or text somebody and go give me your new address i have something you're going to love and then mail it to them you know it might be a little different it might be within an organization it might be something along the lines of okay i know this person is going to get promoted based on the business that they, they're, they're going to look really good if they bring in business. And I might be thinking, okay, I really need this software or this tool or whatever for my company. And I could call that company and call their salespeople and say, hey, I'm interested in using, I don't know, Salesforce for my organization. You hook me up with a salesperson and then the comp and then later on I talk to them. I go, I know you work at Salesforce. Hey, I'm buying an install for the Jordan Harbinger show. And they're like, oh, great. Instead, what I do is I call that person and I go, hey, I'm looking at getting Salesforce for the Jordan Harbinger show. Why don't you introduce me to the salesperson? And then that person's going to owe you one inside the company yeah. or whatever for a, a sale that they were going to make already. 
And that ends up being good for them because of course they reach out to the sales organization and they say, hey, I've got a hot lead for you. Yeah. It's my friend Jordan. They make the intro and then inside the company, now they've got somebody who's not in their department but is in a, you know another part of the company that sort of says like, oh, so-and-so over in, I don't know, corporate finance, they sent me a hot lead and we closed that deal that they get social capital as a result of that they get referral currency yeah, right and, and if they ever need anything let's say they want to make a jump to a different department let's say they want to make a jump to the sales department because those guys get paid more well they reach out to that guy and they go hey how do i make the jump into the sales department and that sales guy might go i'd love to have you in my department you've sent me two people already that bought yeah you yeah. get it you get how relationships are made and generated that's yeah, what man. we need in the sales department so that gets them what they want and all I had to do was call them instead of calling the 1-800 number on the website or whatever, right? So that's the kind of thing that I think about when I'm doing business is, is there a way that I can benefit more than one person with this or create additional, let's say, stakeholders? You yeah. know, I, I, might, I might, instead of calling the CEO of a company when I know the CEO of that company, I might call a lower a salesperson in that company if i know somebody and say hey can you introduce can you hook me up with this and i know the ceo of that company i might even call the ceo and go hey fyi i'm dealing with joe blow down in sales they're doing a really good job selling me your product now the ceo's got this sales guy's name at the top of his yeah. mind and that sales guy is thrilled because he gets a note from the ceo like take good care of jordan he's a friend of mine and then I tell the CEO how great of a job that sales guy did. That guy loves me now. If I have a problem yeah, with that product, yeah. I don't have to call the CEO mm -hmm. and bug him. I can call that sales guy and go, hey, I'm having this problem. And that guy will bend over backwards because I made him look really good to the CEO. And he also knows that if he doesn't solve my problem, he's going to look yeah. really bad. So it's it's all about increasing the amount of, I guess you'd call them stakeholders in, in any sort of situation. Yeah, increasing the stakeholders and the ones that you know, you can bring a lot of value to and that you want to be around and on the flip side, you know, the, the world you want to be in, right? So you obviously the sales or whatever, whatever direction you, you see your career going, you want to, you want to know as much people there, there as possible and bring value to those people. So it makes a lot of sense. So, so Jordan, North Korea. Yeah. North Korea. I am, um, before you get stuck into, like, I mean, I'd love to know more about your experiences, man, because you've been there multiple times. Have you heard of um, Yanmi Park? Yeah, yeah, she's been yeah. on my podcast. She's yeah. been on, yeah. So I actually met her once personally and very interesting. Like, to be honest, I, I remember we were up in um, sort of this conference called One Young World. Jordan, you probably never heard of it. It's um, it's 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 kind of young leaders, young global leaders from kind mm. of 19 to 30. They come together and what it is basically is this kind of, um, we're called One Young World delegates. And then there's kind of One Young World ambassadors and you know, kind of uh, leaders above that, that would like, you know, Muhammad Yunus and Kofi Annan and, the, and these people are there to train us or to teach us how we can best influence. So it's a huge conference anyway, people, so they'd have, they'd have somebody, a delegate from every, um, every country would be there and we'd all come together once a year. So I was lucky enough to be part of that community and still am to a lesser degree as an ambassador. But I remember I was in, in it was in the convention center in Dublin. I mean, we did, uh, there was a break and I forget and I, and I kind of walked in and there was just something I, I was I was kind of looking around and I just said something something a bit off here. I kind of saw Yan me on her own in the corner, just kind of mm -hmm. kind of very. Um, I just felt drawn to her for some reason. I was like she seemed very vulnerable in that in there in, in that environment on her own, you know. So I went over and I started talking to her, and I never I just never um, I never got how humble she was and how just sincere and honest and you know just just such um, of a good character. 
And, you know, I like, you know, she, we were kind of, um, we'd say that we'd uh, connect with each other and just kind of stay connected. And she did ask me to, she goes, oh, what about Facebook? You're on Facebook. So I was, oh, yeah, Facebook. Remember, she'd go to the phone on Facebook. There was this, whatever, 60, 70,000 followers. And that's the first time I was like, strange, <laughs> you know? And then two days later, she gave a talk. God, and she had a whole place in tears. The whole place was in tears at her story, you know? Um, and it was a real insight into me around North Korea. I suppose at that time, I obviously, you know, North Korea, but it's not a part of my world, but when yeah. she shared it, it really brought it to life. So, I mean, I'm for you to be there. I'm, I'm super curious about your experiences there, man. And, and what, I suppose if I was to ask a question, like what was the, what was the experience over there, Jordan, that you said that, that was the most outrageous or the most fucking surprising to you? I mean, it's really tough. Well, North Korea is tough, right? Because when you go there, you are not allowed to just sort of travel around on your own. You're not allowed to talk to local people. You're not allowed to do anything sort of real. It's all very managed and st even stage managed. Like you can't just interact with anybody barely at all. You, you're really only going to the places that they want you to see. And there's there's minders with you the whole time that are tour guides. You're not allowed to go. Uh, you're not allowed to leave the hotel by yourself. Like it's very very managed. So you don't really get to see a lot of the things that are probably the most egregious or the most surprising. Yeah. yeah. You just kind of get to see what they want you to see. Now there's tricks, right? Like uh, we used to play this game where if we saw something interesting out the bus window, somebody would say, <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom right now. And the bus driver would just pull over and we'd all get out and go to the bathroom, right? <laughs> um, and we would do that around these villages and stuff like that. It was very, fairly interesting and, and funny. We would we would do that around these villages and like try to interact with the locals and the, our tour guides were like, come on, don't do this, you're gonna get me in trouble, you know. So um, they didn't say that, but th that's that's the, that's that's the subtext. Is, yeah. We had to be pretty careful because you don't want to get your guide in trouble. I mean, it's like it's, it's not worth it. Um, and but man, they don't have running water in most places. They don't have electricity in most places. Uh, they don't have internet anywhere uh, at all other than I think certain elite people probably have it, you know, at their library or their university or something, but they don't have mm -hmm. it. But what was really especially weird was watching people use computers that clearly were not actually doing anything on the computer. Like you'd go to the mm -hmm. library and they'd say, oh, we're going to look in and there's a class and people are learning how to use the computer. And there would be like a, there would just be a, a bunch of guys that looked like they were they'd never seen a computer and they'd be staring at the screen and the screen would have like the white Microsoft paint or a, a drawing program or a CAD program open and there would be nothing on the screen and they would just be moving the mouse sort of but like picking it up and looking at it like they'd never done it before and looking at this and you could just tell that guy had never seen that computer before and was just sitting there. And you're like, why did they do that? Why did they fill this room with people? Yeah, doing it's a stage, Jordan. Is it just kind of is it kind of something that just here's a group of tourists coming along? Let's yeah. pretend like we're doing something here, right? Or that's totally now. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of the classes were real. Like you'd go and you'd see an English class, and they'd be repeating words, and there'd be a teacher in there. But some of it was just clearly like they just wanted to show people we're here and. It was very bizarre because they would say like, this is the center of culture. This is the center of learning. And there'd be a book in there from 1986 that was like computer programming. And I'm like, this is for programming a Commodore 64, which is a computer that <laughs> unless you're a collector, nobody has anymore, obviously, and hasn't had for 20, well over 20 years. 
Um, you know, and like this is this book is out on the table, like someone's just reading this. Come on. It makes it makes mm. no sense. So you'd see a lot of stuff like that that made absolutely no sense. There were other things that were really trippy though. We were driving on uh, there's a 10-lane highway. There's n- almost no cars on it. There's no lights. Why do you need a 10-lane highway? Yeah. You don't have any cars. You know, it's just, it's, and we we drove and drove and drove and I one of the guys on the bus is, oh my God, there's an accident. And I look over and sure enough, not only is there an accident, there's a dead guy in the road. Okay. And we're like, we got to stop and help them. They're injured. There's a guy in the road. There's people like on top of the car, there's a guy who's bleeding. And the, the tour guide goes, no, no, we don't need to stop. The police are coming. And I was like, how do you know? What are they, they don't, how are they calling the police? We don't know if they have mobile phones. Yeah, yeah, they don't need phones, yeah. And then they would go, it's okay, the local people are coming to help. And we're like, okay, you don't know that. Also, where are they coming from? There's nothing as far as the eye can see in any direction. She's like, oh, no, there's villages over there. They're going to come and help. And I'm thinking, well, there's a dead guy in the road. If these people are injured, how do we know that anybody from the village even knows that this accident is there? And also, what are these villagers going to do? They need a hospital. They need an ambulance. And then we were like, this is so confusing. And they wouldn't stop. They wouldn't stop. They wouldn't stop. And we're like, whoa. So we're talking about that the whole way home. And then we get to the hotel and, and uh, where we were going, and we're like, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, that guy could have been dead. He looked dead. He was laying in the road, the accident. And the, and the tour guide goes, what accident? And we're like, the one Jesus, we saw on yeah. the way here. Yeah. And she goes, I didn't see anything. And then we're like, what the hell is going on right now? Like, she's straight up just gaslighting us. Yeah. Everybody on the bus saw what they saw. There's like 40 of us, you know, yeah. or 20. You know, what do you mean, what accident? The one we just fucking saw. Yeah. And it's like, she was just going to straight up pretend like she didn't even know what we were talking about. She just was like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's insane. It was so weird. And I was like, why on earth were we, And I think the instructions had to be, if you got tourists, they can only see positive things in the country. Like, don't let them see anything like a traffic accident. Because she's like, oh, no, we don't, we didn't, I, there was no, and we're like, we literally all saw the dead body in the road. We saw the tra- crashed car with the wheel that had come off or whatever. Like, we yeah. saw it. What are you, t- and she just would not acknowledge reality at all. And it became this weird metaphor for the whole country where like, you just have to fucking pretend everything is fine. Because the if, if you don't, you're gonna get thrown in a gulag or something. And it's like, Strange, how do you not like, help someone? I, it's just so, it just, their humanity had been totally stripped. At that That's point. humanity, so, yeah, I think, I mean, like what's the future look like? Yeah, you know, Korea, man. What's going on there? <laughs> it, it, it's it. It was so it was so weird to see that because I can't. There's there's just no other country that I know of, other than maybe like China. You hear about this happening in where people and lately as well, like with COVID and everything else, and how they're operating in China. Yeah, in the different regions and stuff like that. It's pretty. Um, well, you 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 hear like in China, there's no Good Samaritan law. So if you see a kid laying in the road who got hit by a car it's actually dangerous for you to go and help them because if they die and you tried to help them, you can be the one that is liable for trying to help them, which is really, really bad policy. The other thing that's crazy about China is, and this isn't North Korea, but you know, since we're on the topic, if, if you are, if you um, hit somebody with your car and they are disabled for life, you have to pay for their care. But if you hit them with your car and then you run over them again to make sure that they're dead, you're responsible for their death, but you're not responsible for their care, and it's actually cheaper. 
So the incentives are to kill the person that you've injured, which is totally fucked up. Um, and I just wonder if North Korea maybe has a similar policy where it's like you should just just mind your own business. Don't try to help anybody because, you, you know, you might be in trouble somehow, especially yeah. if you're with foreigners. They're not supposed to see that there are traffic accidents and problems in the country, which makes no sense to me. I mean, obviously, we were all so, so traumatized by the fact that we just left these people on the road at night. You know, or heading into yeah. The- I think, again, it's it's definitely something that you don't forget. And yeah, but like in terms of for you, John, I know your father, right? So recent father is going to probably influence mm-hmm. this in 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 a way. But I was going to ask you the question of, you know, do you have any um country that you haven't been to, or you you know that's really on the edges again? You know that you're you know you want to get after explore. Um, I would love to check it. now that I'm a father. It's it's so interesting because people go, oh man, we're we're next for you, and I'm like Greece. And they're like, Greece? <laughs> what happened to China? What happened to North Korea? What happened to you going to all these, uh, you know, da-da-da, dangerous places? I'm like, man, I got kids now. I'm Different game, isn't it? Like, so I know, I obviously, we, t- we spoke about kids before we came out here, but, like, yeah. you know, for me as well, like, I have a lot of work as well that I do international. And, you know, you kind of just think to what you uh, spending time away from them or, or putting yourself in dangerous situations. You know, you can't. It's, no, it's you kids, can't. You, know? you can't do it. I, I now, when I do... My version of dangerous stuff is I go with organized tour groups who have done these these particular excursions before, and I even skip the dangerous parts of those. So, like, I went to Morocco, and they were we were going up a mountain, and I did the hiking part all the way up to the base camp, and then they said, okay, tomorrow we're going to summit, and I said, I'm not doing it. And they're like, why? I'm like, it's too dangerous. And they're like, oh, it's fine, but, you know, we respect your decision, whatever. They go up the summit and they come back and they're like, oh my God, that was really hard. And there was a lot of places where people could slip off the mountain. And then we found out mm. that somebody had died like the week before. Yeah. Your instincts drop there. You're, you're kind yeah. of, as a father, you probably get that instinctual awareness ramps yep. up and you, you got to follow it. Like, you know? Yeah. It'd be pretty selfish for me to die hiking up a mountain when I've got two kids. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's just, no, not, not gonna, it, it makes no sense. And uh, you'd have a good Christmas, Jordan, given the time of year we're at right now. Yeah, the yeah. Family, it's, I'm just not going to do that to my kids, you know. Not if, if, if Look, if you, God forbid, you die in a traffic accident or something like that, that, some of that stuff's unavoidable. But if you die because you wanted to go zip lining in uh, Tunisia at a, over a gorge, I don't know, man. It, you're kind of a dumbass, you know. Mm, you should yeah. have done that. But you miss it, Jordan, I guess. Was you miss the, um, you know, do you have kind of a, a bit of um yearning for kind of going back into that world mm, maybe not as much it, it was fun it was interesting but now i just have a much more concrete awareness of my own mortality it's really so clear now that you can actually die you know when you're in your 20s and you're in your early 30s you're like i'm fine this is fine Oh, nothing's going to happen. And if it does, you know, the United States Embassy is going to do something and we'll, they'll come get us. Yeah. And I'm healthy and this, that, and the other thing. Now I'm like, I don't know. I've got a lot of friends who are dead now, unfortunately. I'm not trying to make light of it, but I've got a lot of friends who went hiking in Kilimanjaro and got hit in the head with a rock and died. Or I got another friend who mm. was driving a dune buggy and he freaking hit a, 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 a hole in the desert and yeah. the car went in there and he died. And like, you know, I've got friends who went four wheeling and they went through the ice and they died. And it's like, wow, you can do You can die. It, it sounds dumb, but it's like, wow, you can die doing dangerous things. You don't think that you think you're invincible when you're younger. But then when you have kids, 
you know, you start to go, not only am I able to die, but if I die, there are real consequences. Whereas yeah, before man. it's like, ah, my family, my family and friends would be sad, but it'll be fine. Now it's like, oh man, my kids are going to grow up without a dad. Yeah. They're going to, my wife's going to have to do that all by herself. Like the calculation just completely changes. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. Yeah. yeah. Just given obviously the, the way we are now, you know, was the fatherhood and kind of kids who are ages and stuff like that. Definitely. Um, it's, it's, it's life changing. That's one of the, in one way, in many ways. And that's just one way. Jordan Curtis, right? So just as we kind of close up the conversation, you know, you strike me as a, you know, a really high performer, right? You know, that's a, a I conversation, that. you know, big time and the conversations I have is, is kind of really exploring the mindsets behind that. And, and obviously your curious, courageous mentality is, is a huge part of a mindset and your ability to influence and communicate has um, really stood to you, I think, in, in many ways. But just our, our arising out of kind of where you are now, I think reflection has been a huge part of part of it as well, Jordan, when you look back on what you've learned and, and how that has influenced where you are right now. When you, like, given the time of the year it is, heading into 2023, when you look back on this year, you know, is there any learnings that you're taking forward into 2023 that, you know, really stand out? Yeah, you know, I was focused heavily on growing my business and I, and, and I was doing really well with that and everything was growing and growing and growing and growing. And I realize now that I was trying to grow so that I could earn more and I was trying to earn more so that I could grow more. And I realized I started to get caught in this hamster wheel of earn more, grow more, earn more, grow more, earn more, grow more. And then eventually, you know, finally a couple of friends of mine were like, so when do you get off that train? Yeah. And I thought, oh yeah, when do I get off that train? Cause it's fun growing and, and then it's fun having that growth work and earn more. But then I realized, well, wait a minute. I, we may be heading into a recession, almost certainly we are, you know, everybody's sort of predicting that we're going to do that. And it's yeah. like, what happens, I either get off the ride now, or I get forced to get off the ride by a recession, and maybe the timing's not ideal. So I'm sort of winding that whole growth phase down, and I'm just going to ride out the recession, if there is one, probably just the next two years, I'm just sort of, sort of going to ride it out um, and see what happens. And that's been interesting because I was optimizing for money so that I could optimize for growth. And now I'm thinking maybe the next couple of years, I just work a little bit less and I take that time, that extra time. And I spend it with, you know, my kids and my wife and yeah. really enjoy being done at 5 PM every day. And instead of in the morning doing my marketing meetings, I just take that hour and spend it with my kids. Like, I don't think anybody's ever regretted spending more time with their family. Yeah. So I think for the next two years, I'm really gonna enjoy my toddlers and just not worry about scaling and growth because I don't think anybody's died and said, I wish I worked more. Yeah, you know, and you, you, know you, heard a, you heard that kind of um, topic and research there that there was done when there was this person that was in a kind of um, care, a cancer care home and she looked at people and then, and, and those people that were in, the, in in those phases of life and she'd cared for thousands of those people and she researched or she done ask, she asked them questions or she kind of got in what was the um what were the biggest regrets of these people you know when you look back on their lives and uh one of the i think there was a top five one of the top five was i wish i didn't work as hard yeah that's you know? interesting wow yeah. wish i didn't work as hard yeah and I, I love working, which is sort of part of the problem, right? It doesn't feel like I'm working. You don't, it's it's so interesting because it's my own business. So you almost don't feel the sacrifice, but the sacrifice is still there, whether you realize it or I not. Totally I totally resonate. Everything you've said there, Jordan, I totally resonate, resonate with a man because similar position and work has gone extremely well and I've been growing and optimizing. And again, it doesn't feel like work, but it's um it's the time and the time you give 
mm-hmm. the most important things. That's what you need to give to it. So, so John, on that note, right? Is there anything, anything else you want to share with um, the listeners and any any other areas you think they should um, look out to find you? I know the podcast is sure incredible yeah. podcast. Yeah, look, I love if people are interested in some of these stories and some of these takeaways and some of the people that I've interviewed on the Jordan Harbinger show, Harbinger show, uh, depending on how you guys want to pronounce it, H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. I'd love it if people would take a listen and tell me what they think. But otherwise, I, hey, I just appreciate the opportunity. I know it's late for you and uh, relatively early in the day for me, so I appreciate you accommodating the time, and, and it's good talking with you. No matter, Jordan, it's been amazing. And look, I, I, as a listener to the podcast, it's my go-to, right? It's my first one. Mm. When I listen to a podcast, Appreciate that. Jordan Harper show is someone new coming on. Someone new coming on. Sometimes you let me down, Jordan. Sometimes you let me down, man. You don't have new, you don't have someone new on when I'm looking to listen in. So it's 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 amazing. I think the stories are exceptional, but your ability to just cut to the real stuff, you know, cut the bullshit, be real, have real conversations, and that's for me. I suppose that's that's what life is all about. So there's no time wasted in those moments. So I think and and really look again, really interesting and insightful things there as well for people that they can take away and put into their own lives. And I know you said you've got the free um the free I suppose the course that you have around mm-hmm. influence and, and networking, and I, I know I've I've done that years ago. So, and I appreciate and that. Went very well as well, man. So, so John, lastly, I know we're caught with time here. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Your um and your your inspiration in many ways. So keep it going, man. And hopefully we'll have a chat again. I appreciate that. I appreciate right, that. Man. Looking I'm forward to it. it.